Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast on animal studies. I'm Akash Andachi, host of the channel, and I'm joined today by Manisha Deka, who is currently Professor and Lansdowne Chair at the Faculty of Law at the University of Victoria, where she also directs the Animals and Society Research Initiative. Her research interests include critical animal studies in animal law, feminist analysis of law, socium legal studies in general, as well as health law and bioethics. Anisha, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, while reading the book, I found it quite remarkable how rapidly animal studies scholarship seems to now be developing and how the frameworks are becoming increasingly interdisciplinary. Um, your study bridges together theory and legislation throughout the text and furthermore has a sense of urgency. You propose certain solutions, especially in the, in the concluding chapters. I know you also direct the Animals and Society Research Initiative at the University of Victoria, and so I wondered if you could begin by speaking to your background studying animals and law and describe how this book came to be. Sure. Um, well, I've had quite a long-standing interest in questions of social justice um, very broadly. Um, first, I probably like many people um, who grew up in anthropocentric cultures, uh, thinking just in the human realm. And um, through personal influences, um, largely my elder brother, um, then also um, university exposure uh, to, you know, in undergraduate courses where uh, critical thinking was fostered at, um, and in various courses. When I was at McGill University, I was able to uh, cultivate my interest about non-humans and to think about social justice questions and um, questions about deconstructing naturalized binaries and boundaries and able to take that forward through uh, multiple degrees and then into my uh, academic uh, career. And uh, I always wanted to kind of write a text on thinking about the major reform that Canadian legal system and other anthropocentric legal systems uh, require in relation to animals to help, you know, educate about why the property status for animals is so um, devastating in terms of any type of um, hope for their ethical treatment, but also to kind of disabuse um many who hold the view that animals are actually treated well in Canadian society. I think many people understand that there is anti-cruelty laws and they think that these laws must be protecting animals. Um, so um, I wanted to kind of, you know, uh, write something about why they're not. And in all of that, I'd come to know through my own, you know, development in animal law um, and animal studies, uh, more generally, more about how these topics were approached by animal law scholars, namely from a largely liberal framework, and through my critical theory exposure um, as an undergrad, and uh, then my own uh, research interests uh, more broadly in feminist theory, post-colonial theory, anti-colonial theory, disability studies, I wanted to kind of um, bring an emergent uh, filter to the question of animals, uh, not uh, primarily located in a liberal frame, but to think about you know, the question of animal rights, animal protection, caring for animals through a different frame, um, uh, or at least you know what might be seen to be a hybrid frame. And so that was the motivation for uh, writing uh, the text. And along the way, I wrote, um, I've written, you know, lots of um, other articles and chapters, um, but I just wanted to, you know, come together my thoughts on uh, the overall uh, property categorization of animals in the common law and to um, contest that through critical um, theory. Yes. And as far as some of the uh, academic influences, you you note at some point the theoretical influences include feminist animal care theory, post-colonial feminist theory, critical animal studies. But did, was it just logical and easy for for you to bring all of these together in, in, in your research? Um, 
well it was it was fluid in terms of that's um if that can be you know uh synonymous with logical and easy because it that just all was the way i saw this area uh, i think you know a lot of us um are uh very much shaped when we you know follow an academic path through our formative university years and certainly in the early 1990s as student at mcgill uh the uh, social sciences and humanities kind of ethos was very much in deconstruction at least the courses I took and I um, you know took courses broadly in political theory philosophy um, women's studies I was then called anthrop- anthropology uh, political science and um, so it was so normalized to think about questions of intra-human justice and you know what's wrong with uh, stratifications among humans along questions of gender and race most prominently than um, uh, and what I was exposed to uh, through these frameworks. And then I always question, well, you know, the idea of the human is very much also like this Western um, construct uh, that can also be um, pegged to the um, enlightenment thinking that we were deconstructing in other areas of kind of socially constructed difference like gender and race. And um, I always felt like, well, why aren't, why, why am I not being <laughs> listening more in my lectures or my course materials to that? And that, so I was always motivated to learn about that. And uh, of course, in law school, it was even like less critical theory at that time and very much, you know, let's just learn the law. But in some of my upper year courses there, I was able to get back more into theory and uh, with, you know, research seminars. So it all just was quite fluid for me to bring it together because certainly there were, um, scholars before me, of course, um, who would identify as socio-legal and doing this type of work. So just building upon that tradition, um, uh, it was quite um, uh, logical for me just to kind of follow that and bring it to the question of animals. Yeah. I see. And um, and you, you just touched on, on, on human contracts. And, and one of the Contracts uh, that's definitely kind of anchors a lot of the uh, the, the your, your analysis here is this concept of animals as property and and um, and I wonder how does this designation anchor much of the human violence against animals and, and how can it be problematized or amended through the law? How does property anchor? Well, yeah. How how does property, um, or or rather, animal status as property, anchor the the, the violence that's that's committed against them, or that's justified against them? And and how, in in your study, do do you find that that's also you know the um, the the vehicle perhaps, or the uh, the, the site to problematize this anthropocentrism? Yes. So. If we understand property as a legal relationship, we see that it is the ability of who the law recognizes as legal persons to um, basically apportion rights in non-legal persons and uh, amongst themselves. And so questions of property are about relationships between legal persons about rights in um and non-legal persons. That's what we call property. The common law is a very binary system. And um, so when you are not seen to be a legal person uh, in Canadian law, uh, and here I'm taking the common law as my example, but it's you know um, not different in the civil system um, by uh, any notable measure, you are... Uh, like a non-subject, you're, you're invisible to the law. And um, you are an object uh, to which property rights can attach. And who holds those property rights? Legal subjects. So who are legal subjects? And for like, not just now, but for centuries, um, at corporations, right? And yeah. also the hum- humanity as a construct, but the growing kind of... Um, uh, qualifications of more and more humans who today formally are legal persons. Of course, we know historically that wasn't the case. It was a, um, a fraction of humanity. But now, today, we have human beings formally seen as legal persons and corporations. And you 
If you think, what does that mean? That means they get to hold property rights in relation to objects. And so if animals are not persons, they rather are commodified as property seen to be just objects, units, fungible entities to which property rights attach, the law is legitimating a relationship whereby persons can exploit non-persons. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so what does that mean, right? You can trade them, uh, give them away, damage them to a certain point if, if there's regulation about not damaging um, in certain ways. That also means if a property is sentient and alive, you can kill that property as long as you do it according to what may be available as regulation about some methods of killing, not always. Um So we can understand then how the legal properties category is the pillar of all our anthropocentric animal use industries, right? Which, and if we think of like the farming agricultural industry, industries as like the locus of the, in terms of numbers, both aquaculture and agriculture, rather, of how animals are brought into this world in immiserated conditions and then die eventually, how is all that lawful um it's because of the property status so the violence that is legitimated is is not even seen as violence because it's legal right Mm -hmm. so how is it like what legal relationship is underscoring the ability to keep animals captive for example or to breed them on farms it's a fact that they're not legal persons that they are seen just as property and really a non-subject in um anthropocentric uh, systems like the common law. Right. And as far as the penalties for, for those uh, people who do, you know, um, uh, break the existing laws that we have, the, the anti-cruelty legislation, which I know is, is limited, I think what um, comes out in the book, is, as well as various other studies that, that I've read, is that the penalty, the severity of the penalty often reflects the association of the animal to a human, whether it's domestic or wild, whether I think you even discuss the proximity of, of the human in some cases or, 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 or how the case is framed. Um, so why is, how, how is that itself, you know, furthering this, this anthropocentrism and, and how can we move away from that uh, in, 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 in a legal framework? Um, but what really shows like the cultural influence of anthropocentrism and how that infects um, legal decision-making is not so much always what is written in the actual text, is but how these texts are interpreted. So you can take a law uh, about anti-cruelty to animals, where animals just appears undifferentiated as a category. And we know if we look in the dictionary, biologically, that includes a a whole host of different species and beings. Um, But how is that term interpreted uh, becomes a a much narrow category. And so um, sometimes you have built-in exceptions to these anti-cruelty laws, for example, that talk about um, nothing in the anti-cruelty legislation is meant to touch upon or impinge um, regular industry practices. And so we are, you know, we infer from that what those industries are uh, that are using animals, right? But then also you have then interpretation and who interprets laws, uh, obviously uh, those who use them. But then when we we are kind of disputing about what a law means, uh, we come to court if we can and to get a resolution of, you know, what does this word mean and how to interpret this law? And you see that uh, uh in both instances, what happens with anti-cruelty laws, I might just say animals, is that it's only the non-normative practices of animals that ever come under the radar of some of the, the concept of cruelty or suffering. So that what is legitimated through animal use industries, because it's just the norm, uh, that's not seen as cruel. Like what is happening in the slaughterhouse or the abattoir? Uh, these industries are either explicitly exempted or they become implicitly exempted. So then anti-cruelty laws then really only apply to those animals that are valued outside of industry, so are companion animals. And then even again, cultural norms take effect to really value um, cats and dogs, and even more so, some would say, dogs more than cats if you look at the judgments. 
Um, so yes, very much like law is a human cultural product, right? And we have human interpreters uh, writing the laws, but also then interpreting the laws because uh, lawyering is very much about you know the contestation of meaning. Just because something is written doesn't mean we you know what it says, <laughs> and um, the, um, we must it must be interpreted. And so you have like these cultural f- filters, otherwise known as like anthropocentric filters, that help us interpret the law and and these are the outcomes um uh, uh different animals are seen um differently and that pervades the legal system and the privilege that certain animals are afforded uh legally and culturally this is paralleled i think you know in, in theory and um you know myself studying uh animal history you know we're often discuss the great chain of being and the beast machine debate and taxonomy. And in your book, you know, you, you mentioned, you give some examples, for instance, that of whales and dolphins being labeled honor, honorary humans and certain animals now being elevated to, to, to new status based on um, rationality or reason or, or, or some sort of um, uh, humanness that, that I think we anthropocentrically uh, maybe transpose on them. And there's also, you know, a lot of theory that you discuss that's fighting against this, you know, whether it's uh, promoting sentience, you know, um, the, 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 there's also uh, some anthropocentrism there. So what, what are the dominant uh, theories that and uh, that kind of categorize animals nowadays? And, and what are their limitations, do you find? Uh, Akash, are you speaking about um, where there might be some law reform? Why yeah. Well, well, in in um in the critical animal studies or or the, the socio legal framework that that you're familiar with and that you write about, I was just noticing that there were various um, attempts at bettering the lives of animals, but that they're all somehow still anthropocentrically limited. So um, I just thought may, I thought I thought that the listeners might find it interesting just just an overview of of, of some of those theories. Right. Okay. So, um, well, one of the reasons I wrote the text is that uh, uh, liberal approaches to the question of, you know, animal liberation, animal justice, animal rights, um, approach the question of why animals should matter to the law, um, largely through showing why it is um, discriminatory to say that they don't matter. How can we understand discrimination as an inconsistency in ter- or an arbitrariness in terms of how we respect some beings that are similar, but then not other beings that are also similar? And that seemed to be, um, you know, rightfully so, discriminatory. Um, and on this ground, it would be speciesism. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the type of thinking that lends to is that one must be shown to be like the in-group. So that if you're currently a member of an out-group, you must be shown to be like an in-group member in order to count according to the norms of the in-group that are um, structuring uh, the paradigm as to who gets to count and who doesn't, who gets to be respected and who doesn't, who gets to be a legal person and who doesn't. And so in this social problem of the law today formally still excluding animals as legal persons, um, what invariably happens is that uh, law reform efforts that you know have to go to anthropocentric legal decision makers, whether in the legislature or in a courtroom, invariably have to humanize animals to make them count in the eyes of of the uh, regular status quo system. So, so, and what does this mean then? What have we valued in legal persons, and why have we, you know, um, justified a legal system that? Uh, is so exclusive of so much of like planetary life and well because of our anthropocentric thinking not just in western cultures elsewhere as well but very prominent in certain western intellectual traditions that humans stand first humans are at the top of as you said chain of being and um we can justify this human exceptionalism because humans are unique at x and what that x is um you know has changed over um, uh, periods as more and more animal. So initially, right, and in, in, in terms of these human exceptionalist discourses that emerged and, and became prominent in Europe, you have the idea of the soul, right? And then religious yeah. ideas of uh, why humans are first and more important and superior to everyone else then gave way as enlightenment thinking 
pervaded uh, Gumor dominant to more secular reasons. And a very steadfast reason that has really been influential to law is this idea that humans are rational and humans are the only one with reason or the only one with a certain level of reason. And that's why um, it's okay to dominate everyone else and um, to basically have systems of human exceptionalism. Um, So uh, in try to fight this system, we can understand why legal reform for animals has to kind of play this game of saying, well, you know what? Whales exhibit this level of rationality. Chimpanzees exhibit this level of rationality. Even pigs exhibit this level of rationality. Um, uh, But a lot of critical theory will point to the fact that, you know, this is hardly transgressive. To say that the out-group is like the in-group and that's why they matter doesn't really respect the differences or alterity um, of of the out-group. It's it's a very conservative system where you where we kind of take the center and enlarge and enlarge it to other beings that are like those at the center, but the center is never displaced, right? So that's very well captured by Bell Hook's like iconic book, um, From Margin to Center. Um uh, in like the world of um, anti-racist feminist theory from the early 1990s. Uh, and so the intervention I seek to make in the text is to think of, you know, the same goal for animals, animal, whether we call it animal liberation, animal rights, animal protection, um, caring tradition for animals. And that's the one, you know, I gravitate to for reasons I specify in the book, but to get to the same and protective goal for animals where they cannot be exploited. Um, so when I say same, it's like uh, meaning what you know more liberally oriented animal law scholars want for animals. They're stopping being exploited by property and being protected by the cover of personhood. Um, but through arguments and ways of thinking that can uh, respect animal difference so that you don't have to be shown to be human-like and of course, what we think is human-like is also so partial and constructive, because we're not ta- we're taking the the experiences of dominant humans to say what is human-like, i.e., ra- um, being able to um, uh, exercise uh, capacity for reason uh, at a certain level, and um, otherwise, you know, um, presenting oneself as a very kind of individuated, autonomous person. I see. Yes. And um, I, I think you've begun to answer this. My, my my next question, but I was, I think we we turn now to some of the solutions that, that you present in the book, which which I found really um, impressive and and fascinating. This beingness model that that you propose, uh, in contrast to the personhood model or liberal humanist theories that that, that are limited, as as you just explained. Um, so c- could you introduce beingness to our listeners and um, and discuss how it allows for animal agency in a system where the decisions are still being made by humans. Yes. So um, beingness is a new little ca- new legal category that I'm trying to theorize in the book as an alternative to personhood. So uh, probably amongst animal lawyers, animal law scholars, the most contentious aspect of the book, for those who already believe that animals should matter and the law shouldn't treat them as property, um, is to suggest what I do argue is that personhood is a problematic category for animals. For the reasons I just mentioned in the earlier answer, that um, uh, or related to those reasons, that personhood is very much molded on this idea of a paradigmatic human uh, which I say that you know animals are never going to fit into, or only the honorary animals may fit into that. And we can see that in the Canadian jurisdiction with um, the example of our cetacean bill from uh, almost two years ago. Uh, and uh, it's the first time, right, that uh, Canadian law is taking an anti-captivity position for an animal. Um, so no more captivity for a certain animal. And, and it's not surprising that that animal is not you know, a mouse or a rat or a pig, even though um, we might say that their level of intelligence is the same. But the point mm-hmm. is we attribute like this honorary status to those animals we think are very human-like and um, we empathize with and, um, and, and, and not the others. So beingness is meant to, you know, obviously attend to the needs of those animals as well, like whales and dolphins, but also the other animals are never going to make that cut. 
um, because of either, you know, our biases about, you know, and stereotypes of those animals, even though they might well be as intelligent as whales and dolphins, but more so to say that intelligence shouldn't be the marker of who's making that cut. So whereas personhood is very much, you know, it's personhood is a complicated concept and there's no one definition of personhood and there's wonderful scholarship showing how personhood, like, um, although it's a pillar of, of, uh, 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 European legal systems, this idea, it's rarely talked about. And that's not so unusual. We have, you know, grounding pillars of laws that don't get a lot of attention in terms of what they actually mean. Um, and But when we, other scholars have shown that when courts, when judges do talk about person, legal person, legal personhood, there's certain iterations. And one of them, a very prominent one, is this idea of a par- this paradigmatic reasoner, an autonomous person, um, an individual who is like this, um, not just reasons as certain capacity, but organizes your life um, uh, according to economic maximizing principles. Okay, and so there's a lot of critical theory that's not really related to the question of animals that says this reasonable person that the law imagines is a complete fiction and um, uh, uh, doesn't exist. So Mayo Moran in the Canadian context University of Toronto legal scholar um, has uh, written about this core idea of the reasonable person in common law and how they're just, uh, you know, it's, it's such a fiction. Um, but this is the reason I'm saying that personhood is not really favorable to animals because it is so grounded in that concept that only the humanized animals that we think are human enough are going to benefit from this vision of personhood and it really can attend to the needs of all these other animals. And I mean, feminists and others have made this argument about women and other marginalized groups that personhood really doesn't fit well because it, it not only has this kind of checkered history, but it's, it's just imprinted in that mold and, and it's not easy to get out of it today. So it's not easily re- a rehabilitative concept. So beingness is meant to be an alternative that doesn't start from um, uh, features of autonomy of uh, uh, individual uh, understood individually, uh, non-relationally, and of uh, reasoning capacity and uh, being of just of the mind. But it it tries to populate a concept that is otherwise abstract. Um, with other values. So as counterparts to personhood's emphasis on things like rationality and autonomy, um, beingness um, tries to direct our attention to the values of um, embodiment, relationality, and vulnerability. So whereas today we might think, you know, who's a legal person? And if I ask, you know, first-year law students after first year to draw, like, who's a legal person? We're going to see a specific picture come out of like this able-bodied male hyper-rational maximizer um economic maximizer who doesn't have anyone else around him um has you know pulled himself up by his bootstraps and is leading like this completely independent life with no vulnerability relationality or embodiment um it's just some purely of the mind even though there's a definite social location there in terms of privileges Instead, beingness is meant to be a category that after students learned about this in the first year as a new you know, alternative, it, when we draw a beingness, we may not draw a, someone who's a legal being, we may not draw a human, hopefully we wouldn't, but at least we would draw an, um, a, a, a representation of a being who is embodied, like that there's a definite, definite body there that can be heard, that there's an attention on the body, that there's intention on the vulnerability that that particular being is exposed to. And that there's not just one kind of being in that picture, but a relational web with other beings such that we understand that, you know, even people um, um, don't, and all like planetary beings do not exist in this world on their own in some vacuum with no one else around them. So what does that do for a legal system then to say that animals are legal beings? It's meant to guide decision-making in a non-anthropocentric legal system whereby any disputes about animals or um, that might arise would attend to their vulnerability, their relationality, and their embodiment to figure out what to do.
Whereas now we have this core principle of personhood. Um, it, and of course, animals are just property, so they're not even visible to the law. But instead of trying to bring animals into personhood where they're going to still have to meet human benchmarks, I suggest that beingness, of course, is still an anthropocentric concept. Of course, it's still human made. We're, and we're never going to get away from that. So, and I don't pretend that this is an um, animal authored concept. Because, of course, I'm uh, a human I'm suggesting this, and the law will continue to be human made. But at least um, we can through being nice, try to value animals for who they are rather than their proximity to humans. And that's, um, I see the core contribution of what being is supposed to do. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I'd like to get into uh, like a question that, that I was uh, often thinking about throughout the text. You, you provide many examples from Canada. We've gone over some. I hope our listeners aren't too alienated. I, I'm sure that there's parallels throughout the world. And um, at one point, you know, in discussing a vote against shark finning and uh, and the import of dog and cat furs, um, you note that they were practices that were widely presumed to be foreign and not constitutive of Canadian, meaning white, cultural sensibilities and, and economic realities. Um, there was a few years ago uh, quite a significant uh, high-profile movement against seal clubbing, and I know that in response, Inuit filmmakers released a film Angrianic, which combated uh, these animal advocacy groups and claimed that the hunters were practicing their traditional rights and were being unfairly critiqued. Um, so I suppose my question is, how do we maneuver cultural spheres and sensibilities while trying to propose a, uh, a universal or national post-anthropocentric legal order? Yes. So um, thank you for the question. That is a very layered, important question. The first place where, and something I've thought about for a long time, given my own um, academic formation in question, in the early 1990s in critical multiculturalism and questions of post-colonialism. So um, really, I spent those years as an undergrad um, learning about feminism, then understanding the dominance of Western feminism, and then critiquing that through post-colonial feminism. And many of those questions were about, um, you know, understanding the problem of misogyny and gender inequality is real the world over. Um, but then worrying about how certain representations um, of uh, non-Western women uh, kind of came to dominate Western thinking. Um, and so this was fundamentally a problem of kind of seeing problems in other cultures, but not seeing a problem in your own or seeing less of a problem. And that was the critique of post-colonial feminists against Western feminism, that um, uh, the West was seen to be better on gender and more favorable for women, and that um, the non-Western, Southern countries and non-Western cultures were seen as... Um, really hostile to women and post-colonial feminist theory. And I you know, use this a lot in my writing to, was to argue against this um, and to say, um, uh, not that there isn't, there aren't problems in not these countries, but that to think that, you know, we are doing much better in Western countries is also um, is, is something to contest. And cause we don't want, we want to see kind of problems in other people's backyards and not in our own. Right? And as people mm-hmm. say, and and this and like why is that going on with postcolonial feminists? Say it's because of what we think about like civilizational cultures and the how women were treated was a primary ingredient of our differentiator of um, racialized cultures along the civilization gradient. Right, that's kind of one of the legacies of colonialism. So we have the same dynamic going on about animals, where um, um, and you see that through kind of the instances of what first catches mainstream public attention and ire and um, uh, legal attention at, you know, at nominal times. Uh, When we hear about, um, for example, dogs in other cultures, right, being eaten or um, a mistreatment of animals that we think we treat well, or even how we understand, you know, the origins and, um, practices leading to the coronavirus and zoonotic diseases. We don't often point the finger at our own practices um, in the West um, or just you know whichever countries are 
culturally dominant at any particular time, we are, it's easier to, and because of, you know, longstanding tropes, colonial tropes, racist tropes, class-based tropes, we look to other cultures and classes to say they are treating animals or they're treating women um, more like problematically and they need to improve, whereas we don't. Okay, so that is a problem um, both with respect to you know, how we think about women in, and how they're treated in cultures and animals. At the same time, we want to label that as a problem and you know deconstruct it as I've kind of just done quickly here. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, like nowhere in my feminist theory that I said there aren't problems for women in other cultures, whatever those other cultures may be that are seen to be as non-Western cultures, right? And and we need to remember that um, all cultures are human authored. And so when we think about the quest, the problematic um, concept of universals, it's not so much that we don't have universals that we um, don't believe in, right? For example, human rights is a strong universal. The idea of equity inclusion that's a strong universal but we have to think about how do we understand what we see as inequitable or what we see as um, a violation of human rights and it's not the fact that we want to deny violence that is going on in a cultural community just because that human cultural community is marginalized or um is has been you know uh, systemically violated by colonialism and racism but we need to understand um, gender and culture and animal status and colonial status as a whole part of a matrix of how we frame social problems without obscuring the fact that violence against vulnerable individuals still happen in human cultures, whether those are animals or uh, children, human children or women or others. So, um, I think it's important when we think about universals and what can be problematic is not to then also assume that there's a homogenous viewpoint in any given culture about animals or otherwise. Um, So just as something is a cultural tradition, yes, it may be very important, but we know we're never going to find homogeneity within um, indigenous, a specific indigenous culture or other marginalized cultures about what cultural tradition should mean or what they should be. And, um, and even if we do, which, you know, I would contend that th- that, that just isn't there, that would be just too homogenizing of uh, peoples in the tradition. Even if we do, I would say we have just to remember that whatever is said by humans about human cultures is still human authored. It's not coming from animals themselves, right? Or whatever, let's say, adults say about children, right? It's not coming from children themselves. And we have to be mindful of who is the subject position and the subject and authority, just as we're mindful of like larger dominant culture versus um, indigenous cultures, marginalized cultures, and other kind of stratifications. And I think one of the ways to understand this is the insight also that animals are also cultural, and this gets lost in this kind of framing of um, how do we think about different cultural traditions. We have to remember that when we think about culture, that has been another um, kind of ground for suggesting that humans are unique or special, and it would help us to see that what we what we what we think of, uh, of as culture, that many animals also express this. And then so if we start to think of animals as part of that cultural kind of matrix of which cultures do we want to respect, it completely um, kind of orients us to a different type of question, which is about how can we, this is something Claire Jean Kim talks about in her work that is very well known, this idea of mutual avowal. How can we hold concern and respect for so many different forms of violence, whether it's racial violence, colonial violence, gender violence, which all relates to animal violence, vice versa, um, and we and go forward without exempting kind of any type of treatment of individuals in the name of culture. How can we still respect culture, but then not give culture like an, an immunity to critique is the overall million dollar question. And I think there are ways to go forward in in 
uh, on different issues. But I don't think the answer is just to say, well, this is a cultural practice and it's it's um, a, tra- a, a traditional practice and, and that ends the conversation because it doesn't even end the conversation for those who are cultural insiders because we know there's contestation in a community about culture and tradition. Yeah, it, it's definitely a million-dollar question, but I, I, I think you, you uh, described it wonderfully, so thank you. Um, there's... Uh, an opening quote that you have at the, in, in this book by Karen Joy Fowler, and I won't paraphrase, but it, it summarizes a lot of the core misunderstandings that have historically supported claims of human exceptionalism. And thinking, uh, you know, myself growing up uh, vegetarian and, and having my friends, you know, uh, slowly kind of evolve over our lifetimes towards, I want to say, more plant-based diets, I noticed that it was largely... Uh, in tandem with a with a conversation shift away from the morality uh, of animals and more so human health and the environment as, as the primary concerns. I'm not sure if you notice this as well, but I, I wondered if, in a practical sense if this influences which legal channels are most effective at curtailing violence against animals, um, both in the short term and the long term, potentially. Yeah. So this does go back to you know earlier points made about how we tend to get to legal strategies that are humanizing animals and we can, and so, and I'm not, you know, knocking those strategies because we can understand why, you know, um, lawyers and, and others involved in such law reform projects, very committed to, you know, freeing all animals from this property status, regardless of whether they're so-called intelligent or not, or reason at a certain level, uh, still have to play by the rules of the game and where they think they're going to get the most traction from uh, those who subscribe to these kind of human ex- exceptionalist norms that want to see someone shown to be human before they can, or human-like, before they can receive moral consideration. And um, I think you see the... you. S- on a person level in term, and like, you know, on a personal level, what is like the one major shift that we can do on a personal level that doesn't involve like, you know, really um, uh, any other person's involvement is to change what we eat, right? Is to change it even a little bit to change it. Um, but that's very hard because of going back to questions of culture, of family, of belonging, of identity, um, and, and, and on a whole host of, of grounds, um, uh, gender, uh, class, culture, nationality, religion, all those things go up into making our dietary patterns from childhood onward. And so, um, and of course, uh, economic privilege as well, because, you know, even eating animals, animal products is not cheap. Uh, the world over. And so, um, uh, but if you take like the country, the affluent countries, you know, Canada being one of them where animal consumption is so enormously high and we're not even like, you know, uh, the worst in that metric, um, these countries, the global North, where it's a complete privilege to kind of consume at the levels that we do. Um, it's, and despite all the signs out, it's very hard to change for these kind of social psychological reasons. So how I think about that in the law is, you know, it's, there's an interesting debate about will a big legal change change social behavior or not? And um, there are different viewpoints on that. Or should we just aim for change outside of the law? Um, and hope for that. And I think this question about animals, of course, has to be both. Uh, the purpose of, you know, beingness and prohibiting animal use industries is not to kind of incarcerate anyone who was like regular people, let's say, who aren't subscribing to, let's say, vegan ideas about how we should live in this world, right? And plant-based. But it is meant when we have a big change in the legal system, and that would be a phenomenal change, right? For beingness to be implemented and and property that would fundamentally change society, right? But we've seen in the last year pretty fundamental changes in societies the world over, especially in Global North. What we thought was impossible all of a sudden became possible. And with, you know, certain with the money thrown at things that otherwise would never have been, uh, uh, you know, budgeted for and a whole reordering of society. So um, what we think is like just too much to do may not be. And um, I do think it gives us some lessons to think about 
that radical change is possible. We can reorder our societies. And frankly, when we think about climate change, even if we don't care about animals, we're going to have to because that's just the reality. And so um, that's where... I do think that there can be a multi-pronged approach where there needs to be intervention in all areas of society and even a multi-pronged approach within um, Canadian legal system itself, where you can continue to have kind of humanizing legal efforts, although that's not, you know, um, something that I would champion wholeheartedly, that's nevertheless going to go forward. And people who are asked to interpret those types of legal submissions will invariably kind of pull on their anthropocentric thinking to say, okay, oh, I can understand why this whale bill should go forward. I can understand now, even now, but there is the um, Senate bill, the Jane Goodall Act, that has very strong Indigenous kind of background and component, but it's still, for likely very strategic reasons, about what are the the humanized animals in Western cultures, um, elephants, or at least in Canadian cultures, elephants, chimpanzees that are kind of now talked about in the second act. Um, but uh, so those types of uh, bills will still go forward. But then I think the Jane Goodall Act also, that bill also contains the seeds of a new understanding, a more beingness oriented understanding where, because that, let um, propose legislation that bill has provision for um, other animals to be considered for anti anti captivity anti zoo measures basically um, as basically I think as it's termed or paraphrased new evidence comes forward and it also that bill proposes that animal organizations be involved in these decisions when these types of organizations other than the humane society are usually just maligned and you know seen as terrorists and um so to have that type of like social sanction and kind of validity of the protective work that animal organizations do to have their input be proposed as part of um uh, administrative decision making in this Jane Goodall Act, a proposed bill, and to think that kind of non to leave a space, a door opening for non human animals um, that are not humanized to possibly be considered as beings that shouldn't be in captivity, um, as you know, just as minor as it sounds. Uh, for a Western legal system, for a bill to come forward like that, it is really still radical and. Um, uh, so it's the Jane Goodall Act is kind of a hybrid model of, of saying, yeah, we need to be practical and pragmatic and do our humanizing arguments if we want something to shift here. But at the same time, it's like inserting something that is not tethered to the human benchmarks as tightly and could, you know, hopefully be a harbinger of, of other methods that value different solidarity rather than just saying this to the already in group. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, that's, that's hope. Um, Manisha, uh, so wonderful talking to you. Um, thank you so much. And I, I wondered as the last question, you know, I know you just published this book this year, but uh, are, do you do you know where your research is taking in the future, and, and has the angle shifted due due to COVID and and the implications that might have on on the natural world? Oh yes, well thank you. Um, uh, yeah, well very. The, thanks to the um, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, I have uh, been funded for a new research project, a uh, book project as well, uh, taking a deeper dive into the question of um, basically non-government regulation of the industry where most animals are bred into and lose their lives, um, which is uh, agriculture. And um, the question is, does, you know, kind of building from this beingness project, uh, but it's not one purely of legal status. It's more related to another uh, concept of the rule of law, um, which is foundational to Canadian legal system and and the ideas of colonialism and civilizing missions. Because if you think about it, like how did British imperialism spread? Or what types of justifications is this idea? Well, we have to export law to these ostensibly lawless societies. So the rule of law, you know, for good and likely worse, though, has become a ubiquitous concept, not just in legal circles, but developmental circles. And Canada and many other jurisdictions pride itself on being a society run by the rule of law. So this question takes up, well, what about when there is a social problem of violence? 
which the government is not doing anything about. Can we see that as a rule of law violation? The rule of law is usually invoked to stop government from acting. So if you think of the Guantanamo Bay um, camps, right, we saw a lot of rule of law discourse enter public discourse at that time in op-eds and otherwise to say government has to stop doing this because it's violating this cardinal, long-standing, even Western Western principle of the rule of law. So this project is asking, can the failure of government to regulate to stop violence, and here I'm calling what happens to animals in agriculture violence, can we read that as a rule of law violation? Um, and can we think of the rule of law as something to keep up with changing ideas of the law. So whether we think of that as integration of indigenous ecosystems in Canada, as many law schools are thinking, and more and more um, uh, lawyers are learning about, and perhaps also integrating into their understanding of law as a multi-plural, like a pluralistic legal order, where we have, you know, uh, arguably not as anthropocentric legal systems, you know, um, more multi-species ecosystems that give animals a much higher legal status than the, either the common or the civil law or Western colonial orders that are currently dominant. Can we think of the rule of law being something that sees animals as not property and actually requires government to stop violence rather than the kind of the more narrow concept in, in Western traditional legal orders of what the rule of law means. So it's a way of, it's, it's kind of an innovative pathway, um, I would suggest, to try to get at change for animals, given that we have, related to the last question, Akash, such poor legislative will to do anything for animals still. Um, and uh, uh, even when there is that will, it's mostly for the humanized animals. So it's, it's trying to take a principle that everyone buys into, nobody will come out and say, I'm against the rule of law to say that, they, well, if you're in favor of the rule of law, it actually means we have to do better by animals. And that means regulate these industries, at least, because right now, these industries are virtually unregulated. It's very interesting. I'm, I look forward to reading it. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Decca for taking the time to, uh, to discuss this with me today. Um, the book for our listeners is Animals as Legal Beings, Contesting Anthropocentric Legal Orders. It's published by University of Toronto Press in 2021. Thank you very much to our listeners. And uh, thank you again, Manisha. Thank you so much, Akash. And thank you to everyone listening. It was a pleasure to be here.